Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Okay, this might be my favorite ever wheels off. Paget Brewster is a friend, but not somebody that I've known super, super well. We've worked together on Thrilling Adventure Hour and Wits and done the San Francisco Sketch Fest, Comedy Fest before and hung out some. But I did not expect this conversation to be so fun, first of all, but also to go to some of the places to which it went. When the third quarter, which is typically reserved for the internally generated obstacles questions, you know, the the part where we talk about the things that make it tricky to do the things we do, right? Her answer to that and the conversation that spun out of it wound up feeling to me like therapy almost. Like it was really good to hear someone as successful as Paget has been talk about going through some of the things that I've gone through with regards to dealing with coworkers, dealing with peers, uh, problematic people, and when they have success, and how do we respond internally to the feelings that that generates. Anyway, you'll hear it. It's a really cool, fun conversation. The story of how she got into acting is insane. It's not, I did not at all expect to hear that story from Paget. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. I mean, I didn't do much as by way of introduction. Paget Brewster, she plays Agent Emily Prentice on Criminal Minds. She's, uh, she was on the show Friends. You might have heard of that show. She's been on a number of TV shows and movies. She's been in the live radio program podcast called Thrilling Adventure Hour that I've done uh, a bunch of work with that's put on by uh, Wheels Off alumnus Ben Acker and his partner Ben Blacker. Anyway, I just, this was really a great one and I'm so glad that I hit her up to talk to me and I'm so glad that you guys get to hear it. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Paget Brewster. 
Welcome to Wheels Off, Padgett Brewster. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me, Rhett. <laughs> this is so cool. Uh, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining us? Oh, I am in Los Angeles, where I have been the whole time. The whole and, time. And you are? I'm in my home in the Hudson Valley of New York, just north of Manhattan. Beautiful. Yeah, it really is so beautiful right now. Yeah, I went to school in Dobbs Ferry. That sounds like it's really it's close on, to where I'm at. It's on the way. It's on. It's on in the Hudson Valley. There's like Greystoke, Dobbs Ferry, Hastings on Hudson. You know, going up from from um, New York City, and it's just beautiful. It's beautiful all the time, and the what's, fall is crazy. What's the school in Dobbs Ferry? It it it, it was an all girls boarding school. <laughs> My third high school. I was kind of a rotten kid and my mom had gone to school there. And, uh, and so, yeah, I graduated in 1987. And now I think it's co-ed. It's very hard to run any single sex schools for a multitude of reasons, Um, but it's beautiful. It's in, it's, it's along the Hudson um, river and it's just a beautiful part of the world. So I'm, I'm happy you're happy and, and have a great place. Yeah, it's so weird. I never would have guessed I'd wind up here, but it's it's been a great place to raise kids and stuff. My kids, I'm pretty sure, have played sports against Dobbs Ferry kids. I don't know, maybe that not oh, exact high school. It's called the Masters School, which is oh. a very pretentious name. Yeah, now I feel like you're bragging. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it was... <laughs> It wasn't it wasn't because of academic prowess. Someone named Mrs. Masters must have had something to do with it in the 30s. I don't know. Um, OK, so you alluded to the fact that you've been locked down this whole time and at, at home pretty much. And yeah. I wonder um, I wonder if this doesn't become then a bittersweet question. And um, what creative project are you working on right now and how does it light you up, Paget? Um. For the past year and currently, I am recording a lot of animated series. Uh, we put together a vocal booth here. And um, uh, right now, my show, I play Bird Girl in an uh, Adult Swim animated show called Bird Girl. And uh, we were able to squeeze in six episodes. Uh, and then it takes like a year to animate. So they're all on Adult Swim right now. Um, and do uh, doing animation is very different from on camera work. Um, and the, the, I would be happy. Don't tell anyone in Hollywood, (laughs) but I would be happy to continue just doing animation. Um, I actually left my agency and signed with only a voiceover agent because it's such an exciting, liberating voice acting is completely pure in the sense that you're not worried about, and, and, and I can be vain and insecure and worried about my hair and my weight and where's my lighting and did I hit the mark and these clothes are uncomfortable and even playing an FBI agent, you're wearing high heels. Like it's kind of, there's a, there's, there, I, I love doing on camera work, but voice work is, uh, requires, um, 
a really intense focus and awareness of are you is your voice creating the emotion that is needed to understand the story because it's not visual not my part it's just the voice and in a way it's a little bit scarier and more exciting and maybe it's just cuz that's all I've done for a year and I've embraced it and I don't know what it's like out there. I haven't shot anything in person. I'm a little scared to, um, but I've definitely em- embraced this. It- it's very exciting with, it- and it doesn't come with the trappings of ego or vanity or you, you just have to have the skill and I want to get better and I'm studying accents and, and uh, singing and I audition for everything, even though I can't do kids voices. I'm terrible at that. There are people who are great at that. Um, so this has been a really fascinating year of only doing voice work and um, narration and narration is completely different. Uh, so, so that's, what's been really exciting for me. And I don't know if I'm answering your question yeah. properly. Yeah. Have you done audiobooks? Is that part of no, the and No, now I'm looking into it because that had never occurred to me. Our friend Mark Gagliardi does. Um, and so I just asked, uh, my voiceover agent, Hey, well, what's that like? Also, there are people doing reenactments for podcasts or there's like a Marvel podcast and it's all acting your, your, your voice acting. And, uh, I, yeah, I want to, I want to learn about all of it. I want to get into all of it. Um, I've been lucky to do animation and some narration, but I haven't done audible stuff. Oh my God. I love it. And you're so great at it. Uh, I, it's funny. I've got a few ways into that world, but, um, no, not much. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I listen to audiobooks. All day. I'm an audiobook <laughs> junkie more than podcasts or anything else. I think you would be so great at audiobooks. And so many, you know, of our friends, like you said, with Mark and Nick Offerman, has been doing a lot of audiobook oh, narration. Wow. A lot of people do it, and you would be so great at it. I want to do it. I'm looking into it. Um, yeah, that's funny. I I didn't know what to expect with that answer, and I'm so glad that that's the answer because you're <laughs> you sound like you really are lit up by it. I love it. I really love it. And maybe a part of that is because it looks like on camera acting out there, you're sort of in a folding chair in a saran wrap box. Like it just looks kind of scary to me. You can't be around anyone and everyone's masked still. And so I feel like, oh, I want it the way we used to do it. I want it like (laughs) we all eat lunch in a giant bus and we, you know, everyone's together all the time and joking around. And I, I want that. So I'm a little nervous about what on-camera acting is going to look like out there. I, I don't know. Have you, have you done anything? Have you? I've done some shows and that feels very weird. You know, where, where I'll, uh, I was actually the first ticketed live music performance in New York city after the pandemic oh. at the new city winery. Whoa. And it was it was uh, very scary. It was really weird. I didn't think that my job, having done this thing since I was 15, I just turned 50. I didn't think that I would be walking onto a stage feeling nervous like that. I mean, I've gotten nervous for TV before, but never for a gig. And But man, the butterflies and the questions like, can I still do this? It's been over a year. But of course, by the by the late show, 
I was a, a golden god, Paget. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I, I expect to be nervous. I, I expect to be. I am shooting one day on a horror film <laughs> in in a couple of weeks just to see what it's like out there. A little low-budget, independent, uh, psychological horror film. And uh, I, I, I don't even die in it. I'm just, I just play a doctor, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. And uh, uh, the, the wardrobe lady is coming here tomorrow to the house. And I've shot a film with this company before, so I know who she is. But she'll be the first person that's been inside this house besides my husband and myself in, in, in over a year. So, but, but I was like, yeah, you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I'll wear a mask if you want, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. And let's, let's do the wardrobe fitting here. Cause it's time to, it's time to get back, get back, get back into it. It is. So it, I'm not surprised that you were nervous the first time walking out there. And I guess I'm happy to hear that you were, because if you hadn't been nervous I feel like it would mean you 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 didn't care enough or you you hadn't had a journey of self-searching during this year. So so it's exciting to hear that you that you had butterflies and and then felt comfortable again and in your element. Boy, I'm remembering a New York Times article from a few years back where they talked about the importance of nerves, the importance of um, pre, pre-performance anxiety, because it focuses you and it brings you into the moment. It makes you aware of the stakes of what you're walking into, that the people who don't feel nerves tend to be uh, more flippant and less um, sort of into what they're doing. And it made me feel better about the, the way that I do frequently feel nervous about stuff. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I should read this article because I, I, I embrace that. I, I think it is. It's 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 proof that you're invested and you want to do a good job. And if if you never thought, oh, what if I blow it? You're probably a jerk. <laughs> like there have to be there have to be moments where you're like, oh, I care. I want to do a good job. I hope I don't fail. I. I, I don't know. I definitely am surprised the times I am nervous and the times I'm not. But I but I always care. Have you ever gotten nervous? Have you ever been fine? And then five minutes in, you were like, ugh, jangly? Well, there's a thing that happens where if a show starts off like it's the best show I've ever done, then I'll start thinking, and it's funny because Paul Tompkins originally was the one that brought this up to me. It's this hubris thing where your brain, your brain starts going, I'm the best. This is great. No, nothing could ever go wrong. And of course, what's going to happen then? Things start falling apart. You forget the lyrics. You forget your lines. Maybe it's yeah. yeah. What, that's what I, that's happened to me when I thought, oh, <laughs> I've, I can do this in my sleep. And then you, and maybe even it's psychological. Maybe I am tempering my own hubris by thinking, what a piece of cake, and then lose it. Before we get too far from it, I just did want to go back. The um, I have heard actors do this before. You said, I don't even die in the movie. Um, that is like a coveted thing, right? Like, it's really fun to die in a movie. Am I right? Is this true? Yeah. <laughs> dying on stage, dying in a movie, dying on television. It's, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. And, and def, you know, talk about hubris. To to want to have that moment of like, oh, go without me, like whatever. But there's something about it. I think the idea of a death scene 
for for an actor, at least for me, I I guarantee I can speak for a lot of people. Starting out at seven or eight years old with your cousins in a camcorder, and it's uh, you know you would you you as a kid you you die on camera, and that's like the high that's the pinnacle of acting. You think that's what you know that's what people win Oscars for is dying, and so as a grown up, when you get to die, <laughs> there's something really. <laughs> You feel like, yeah, I've made it. I mean, getting written out of a TV show and dying, that's not as much fun. Although the dying was really fun. (laughs) The dying part is fun. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It it really is. So, yeah, I don't even die in this horror film. Oh, well. So you you brought me naturally to the next question that I like to ask, which is about when you were a kid, when you were seven or eight with a camcorder or whatever. I wonder, did you always know that you would be doing what you're doing? Was there a moment of epiphany when you were little? How did it come about for you? Oh, I I, I always wanted to, to do it. I always wanted to act. Uh, and I was in every school play and all. But that where I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts and um, my parents uh, were teachers. They're retired now, but they were teachers the whole time I was growing up. Uh, Acting was not a respectable, uh, nobody, you don't make a living acting. That's just not possible. So uh, I, I, um, I didn't even, I didn't even try to act and, or get an agent. I went to acting school when I was 24 20, 24. I, I just didn't, I didn't think I, I wanted to do it so badly, but I, I, I was afraid. It was almost like it was an ace in my sleeve. This is really embarrassing to admit. And even worse, you're going to love this. <laughs> I was a singer in bands for years before actively pursuing acting. I was bartending and I was in bands because I thought I would be like Cher or Sting and I'd make my name as a musician and then then I'd get acting parts because I was too scared to even try to to act because everyone had always told me, you know, through (laughs) junior high and high school, I would do NYU thesis films. I would act for you know, neighbors and friends in New York City when I was in a band and I was bartending and I would just do their their films. Like, you know, they all would have to make like a 40-minute film or something, the, the people at NYU, and I would act in their music videos or their films. But I wouldn't try, I didn't even try to get an agent until I left New York City. I moved to San Francisco with my drummer to, to form a band because we'd broken up our band <laughs> in New York. We moved to San Francisco and uh, and and I was bartending and we were putting together a band and a, an agent hung out at my bar and I kept pestering him to represent me and he finally did but I didn't know this he only represented talk show hosts <laughs> and, and correspondents and like anchor people and the, you know the people on the news that go out and interview the giraffe keeper and so he sent me on auditions for talk shows and I got a talk show. So I did the pageant show in San Francisco in 1994, no, 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 19, yeah, 1994. And we did 
65 episodes. And no I way. Talk show host with the microphone and a full panel and running around in the audience and asking questions like the old talk show format. Now everything's kind of like the view or the talk. It's like a panel. But, you know, like the old like Oprah or Ricky Lake or Arsenio. I, uh, no, that was a nighttime talk show. Oh, this Arsenio was just a daytime. Was huh. Yeah, this was a daytime talk show like Donahue. No one will remember that. Um, <laughs> a, a Oprah's show originally, not a sit down one on one. The the talk show host had a microphone and would would sit down on the panel and talk to people on stage. Like, I love my fiance, but my parents hate him. And then you bring the whole family out and they discuss and then you go out in the audience and you ask the audience to ask questions. So I was still bartending while I was shooting that show. We were on at 1.30 in the morning and then, man, but we got really good ratings at 1.30 in the morning. So then I got an agent in Los Angeles and moved to Los Angeles and, and started acting. Um, while I was meeting people about talk shows, uh, my my agent was like, "You want to act? Sure, I'll yeah, I'll send you out on general meetings." And and then I started getting work. I mean, it really, I, I work hard, but I definitely benefited from certain people at certain times in certain places. Like I, I definitely had a a, a, a string of luck. And the mistakes that I made somehow only helped me. Uh, I, which I, I don't even know how to explain that. Having done the talk show, when I had an agent in LA, that's all I had was this, I had done this talk show on at 1.30 in the morning. My agent sent me to all of these meetings alone. I guess it used to be you would go with your agent or something, I don't know. and. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and maybe he didn't believe in me. I don't know. But I would go on these meetings and I had I, my first audition. I they want it was they wanted me to uh, sign a test option deal to go on another audition. And my agent said, no, walk, walk out, walk out. You're not signing anything. And I was like, wait, I think I might they might have me audition again for the network. And he was like, doesn't matter, get out. And then he lied to the, this was back when agents could lie. And my agent was brilliant. He lied to ABC and said, sorry, she's meeting with NBC um, tomorrow. And she's been offered a development deal from Fox. So then ABC was like, wait a minute. Well, maybe we want to make a development deal. And in like one in in one and a half weeks, I met with every network president. I was nobody from San Francisco. And I'm not even from San Francisco, but I was 25, 26 years old. And it was 96. Yeah, it was no, I was 27. Technically over the hill, really. <laughs> so, but because he lied and said to everybody, well, these guys want her. They, they were, they all, no one wanted to miss out. So they all offered me development deals on the basis of nothing, on the basis that they didn't want someone else to sign me. Oh my God. So, I mean, that is profound luck. Don't you think? And, and the agent was brilliant. He could never get away. You could never get away with that now, but 
Yeah, I can't see you um, orchestrating this giant ruse like that. I didn't. I had no idea. I didn't know he had said that. He told me later. He told me later. And when I went and met with people alone, all of the executives, and it was the president of the network, the vice president of the network, their development executives at ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS. I met with NBC. And they, they were saying, well, we're waiting for your your agent and your manager. And I was like, oh, no, 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 they're not. No, it's just me. And they were like, okay. <laughs> they have a giant fruit plate. They have bottle, water on ice. And <laughs> I came in and I don't know. I don't know what I said. I think I just said, I don't, I don't know. I just want to act. Um, and I've been doing it since junior high. But all I have is a talk show. And I think they just were like, she's batty. But we just can't risk that she might be good and lose her to Fox. (laughs) Okay. I just had a vision of someday, 100 years from now, a tombstone. Paget Brewster, she's batty, but she might be good. (laughs) She might be. I don't know. I mean, and listen, I did work very hard. I did work very, very hard. My, my, My foot in the door was without my knowledge, without any expertise or being deserving of it at all. Um, so, but, but then I think you do, I think luck, you know, then you really have to work. Then you have to work really hard um, and, and, keep, and learn. I did, I was, I did terrible work. I mean, you know, you go look, are there any records or songs or, performances that you would look back on now from your youth and go, Oh God, I didn't know what I was doing. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I made an album when I was 17 and I sang with a British accent for the entire album. Oh, oh, that's heavenly. Yeah. Although now I'll tell you, I've got a daughter just turned 15 obsessed with Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift's first two albums. She sounds like she's from the country. She is country. On those albums. She is. And I was British on my album. (laughs) she was country mm, i don't think i don't think so oh wow okay well <laughs> <laughs> i mean not like country is something to aspire to i do think she, no, was... but she doesn't sound that way now now she's no. firmly a pop you know yeah terra firma non not country but wait do you, have you ever played <laughs> this english accent record have oh, you it's... heard it since I made at the time I made, and I don't know why I did this, but I, I limited it to a run of 1,000 CDs and I signed and numbered all 1,000 of them. So they're only 1,000 and they go for a pretty penny on eBay. But I've never, I've tried to keep it off all the streaming networks, but the old guy that put it out years ago keeps putting it back on the streaming networks. It's a, it's a sticking point, but it's out there. You can hear it. I mean, YouTube has all the stuff I'm embarrassed of, probably all the stuff you're embarrassed of. Yeah. Have you looked it up? Is, is Paget the talk show on? Oh, I've seen two episodes. Someone, someone videotaped. Their VHS copy, like they made a VHS copy of the, I don't have any of them. <laughs> Westinghouse owns them. I don't know. And uh, it's, te- I'm awful. I mean, I'm awful. I'm dressed like Bill Cosby. <laughs> I'm no, no joke. Like patterned sweaters. I have a flat top. Like I had, I had very, very short hair I had plucked my eyebrows to look, you know, have you ever, I don't know if you 
remember, like, it would look like sperm eyebrows. Like, they were, <laughs> they were only a little bit of hair here, and then they're all skinny. I had done that to myself. I, and, and also my behavior. I'm a fool. I was 25, uh, you know, having the time of my life. But it's, it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. But I kind of love it, too, because, like, Oh, look at that plucky little bartender go. Like, I kind of I have empathy for who I was. Yours is the most roundabout story I think I've ever really heard. And <laughs> I didn't really know that that's how it was. Although when you say that you sat in those rooms with the heads of the networks and that you got this opportunity that you didn't deserve, to me, that's such a funny, um, like, I think you... How could you not deserve it? I mean, look at you. And I feel like maybe somebody told you you weren't allowed to do it. So you avoided this thing you dreamed of your whole life and you somehow backed into it. It chose you. It found you. You clearly you deserved it. I, I, do, I don't believe. Thank you for saying that. And, and that's very supportive and kind. Um, here's what I think. Here's what I think it is. And I have benefited and been hurt by this same system. The same Hollywood mentality that I don't I don't care what it is. It's young, it's cute enough, and I don't want someone else to have it. Like that kind of infighting ego at an executive level helped me. It's also hurt me as I've gotten older, as a female, as an actress. You know, this this can be a rotten business with rotten people in it. And and I think I just, I think I entered like a lovely lobster trap the good way. And then you get negative repercussions later once you realize, oh, those assholes, knew, they didn't care about me. They wanted to screw each other over. And God bless them because it started my career. But, but there are powerful people in powerful positions that can squish people like me and my friends and Anyone, you know, creative and invested and desirous of autonomy and a, and a, and a career doing what they want, there's still a power structure. Um, and I just happened to benefit from it in the beginning. Does so, that make any sense at all? Absolutely. And, and okay. I think what we're talking about here are the systems and the things that are put in place that wind up becoming, you know, they occasionally help us, but also become obstacles you know, you talk about the other people that did not get into the lobster trap, no matter how much they might have regretted it. Eventually, they never got a chance to be in there. They ne- And um, so I wonder about the internally generated stuff, whether this is just the kind of the self-doubt or the anxiety nerves that we talked about earlier, or if it's um, like in my first interview I did, Roseanne Cash talked about the guilt that she felt about her own success when so many people that she felt like were perhaps more deserving again um didn't never had success i wonder about that the it comes up a lot the idea of imposter syndrome um like all these kind of self internally generated uh obstacles i've wondered how you've been able to overcome them what have you figured out oh um i i don't know if i can say I don't think I have overcome them in any way. I think I have continued on in spite of them. Um, I, I do. I think, I think I feel a great gratitude 
to be able to do what I do. But I know also, you know, I was on a, on Criminal Minds for a long time, and those days are long. And I definitely know that there were times when I was like, oh, this is such a drag. So-and-so is late. I'm going to be stuck here in the Angels National Forest until 5 a.m. My brother's visiting. I'm not going to be able to see him. I got to sit in my stupid trailer. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who would be like, that sounds like the best day ever. And I would have thought that when I was 26. So you, I, I also recognize that I can get spoiled and not have enough gratitude. And that bothers me more than feeling like, oh, someone's going to point at me and say, you don't belong here. That to me feels healthier than becoming spoiled or expecting people to treat you a certain way. That, that is my big fear. It, because I've been lucky enough to audition for jobs and get them and act on camera or voice work, or I'm afraid of thinking I deserve it more than anyone else because I don't think that. I, I think it's certainly not it's certainly not a gift or a talent. What I do know is I work really hard. And that's what I can that's what I can hold on to, but but there have been times when I've started thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I, no one does this better than I, and I, it's like a cancerous thing. And I think it only happens to insecure people. I think you have to kind of think, you have to have moments where you think you're crap to fall into that. Oh no, I'm great. I'm great. I'm, I'm, they can't even do this show without me. They can't do it without me. I'm the most important person here. When you realize that you've even thought that for a second, you better check yourself. That's my bigger fear than feeling undeserving because there are so many people who don't get the opportunities I've had by virtue of their race or age or education or location in the world or genders uh, uh, or, or sexual identity. Like there are so many people that... It, that, that don't get the opportunities I've gotten. I, my, I, I would prefer to be afraid and insecure than think I deserve something. Does that, is that? Yeah. It's, it's almost like it's the opposite of imposter syndrome. It's like the, the, the dark voices inside of you are trying to like come to the dark side. You believe that you're better than everyone. It's happened to me and it's, it is, it's Darth Vader. There's a Darth Vader <laughs> and there's something attractive about that. And, and I think that that might also be a symptom of the industry that I'm in where people cater to you and they bring you your lunch and they call you and they say, hey, whenever you're ready to come to set, you're invited to set. No, you should say now, right now they're ready, go. And, and like, I don't, I, I don't, I just don't, I, I'm so scared I'm going to be a jerk. I'm so scared <laughs> I'm going to be badly behaved or expect treatment better you know a certain level of treatment because i've seen i i've i've seen other people and they're just lost you know they're i've seen people who've 
been really successful for a really long time and they're out of touch and they're they can hurt they can hurt people and 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 i i'm terrified of becoming that um god this is the craziest no, I love this. Ever done. <laughs> I, well, I, um, I love this too because uh, I don't, you know, I usually am talking to musicians or I, mean, I don't really, I guess I don't get to talk to actors very often. And, and, um, and I think obviously you're so, you're so great at what you do. And I think you're in a profession where not only is that, is it possible to go to that dark place of thinking that you are greater than um, that gr- of grandiosity, um, but tell me if you think this might be right. People sometimes reward artists who go to that place. Like they think that it confirms that they are brilliant and that they are better than everyone else. That's part of my problem with the whole hierarchy and foundation of the industry is it almost always rewards bad behavior. And, and, I I think that so, some of the times when I would get angry or feel like, I, you know, I don't need this. Uh, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Like that mindset came from people being late, being rewarded, people being angry and demanding and rude, reward it. Um, if you show up on time and you know your lines, um, you're going to get everyone's lines and you're going to work more hours for less money because they don't learn their lines. And it's really frustrating, but I, I, I and that's why you, I, I have reached points where I, I, I got angry about a great job because bad behavior is rewarded and and then you start thinking, well, am I supposed to be late? Am I, I mean, should I just not care? Should I just half-ass it? Should I, you know, why am I memorizing my lines? And then this guy can't. And the producer comes down and goes, why you? Why are you even writing that guy into scenes? Just, he, just let him stand there. He's attractive. She memorizes. I'm just like, oh, Jesus. God, why am I? Now, I'm what now I'm going to, I'm going to make less money and, and I got to do all that guy's work and my work. You know, you just get, you can get, you can get angry and, and I would rather feel gratitude. And, and that's a hard thing to look, to learn to stick up for yourself without being steamrolled, but don't be a dick. You know, you, how, how do you, and it's always just relax, no matter what you're mad about in any situation, road rage, Someone jumps in front of you in line in Rite Aid, just in any situation, just like, just whew, just stop, take a breath, relax. You won't even remember this next week. Let's just chill. And in, in any work situation where you get upset, that's all you have to do. Just, just sit, just, just shush, just shush and breathe for a few minutes <laughs> and then address, gently address a situation, I, you know, and I can get histrionic and passionate, and but it doesn't help. That that doesn't work. And it's but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's and it's funny that feeling of um, when you're the person that's really trying to be a good person and live by the social contract or whatever, and then you see the 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 
not just the squeaky wheel, but like the evil scene partner or in, in music, believe me, I've had people that I've been sort of come up with that have been really terrible people. And I've had to watch them succeed, not just despite it, but perhaps because of it. And then I, and then it feeds for me this thing of feeling um, envy. And I just feel like envy is as evil a thing as you can do to yourself, right? I, I completely agree. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And you, I, I know you completely understand what I mean about that. Wait a minute. Why is this person having the things that I want when they're cruel to people or they're not? I mean, I can't on stage just playing with people. There's nothing you can do. If someone starts being greedy or hurting the whole band or product to showboat, there's nothing you can do on stage. There's nothing you can do. You just have to eat it. And it's, it's, and you're not being respected, but there's nothing you can do like in a live show. And, and that is frustrating. It's really frustrating for, for you in front of an audience. I, I you know, that's what live theater is like. If, if someone's going to showboat and you, you just got to eat it. And then I wonder a, play, a thing that I've come back to, and believe me, I'll, I'll I'll let this go eventually. But this is something that doesn't come up like this very much in these conversations, and I'm so glad it it has. Um, when I've come up against something like that, the thing that I've found for me that works the best is I think, would I want to be that person? Oh, yes, that's what you have to ask because that person is miserable. Yep, that's the other thing. One way to let go. One way to let go is to just just realize. Oh, thank God. Thank God I'm not that person. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt to be saddled with more work or fewer opportunities or you're not treated at, with as much respect as, you know, Joe. But the people who treat Joe the jerk more respectfully than you, that person's miserable, too, mm-hmm. because if they're rewarding bad behavior... Why they don't deserve better? I mean, it's 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 a it's like a hall of mirrors. Then you know, once you and the only thing that matters is how do you feel about yourself and your behavior and your work ethic? And yeah, we can get frustrated and angry, but that that's why my big fear is if everyone caters to the jerk, I don't want to be the jerk because the jerks are miserable, miserable, lonely, desperate. They need that attention or they need to be late. So everyone's waiting for them. And it's a hole. It's like a psychological hole in them that I don't know if it'll ever be filled. Like, and, and that's a tragic thing to see. People who act with extreme anger um, or selfishness, is, it's, a, it's sad to see. And, and once you realize, oh, that person's miserable, they're already in their own hell. They're already in their own hell. Yeah. I, don't, it, I don't need to. Oh, oh. And maybe that would be the ultimate compassion, right? It would be to, or the ultimate evolution of this, uh, how to deal with it is you look at that person and instead of envy, you feel compassion for them. You just feel like, I hope they learn someday that they can be better to themselves. Well, now let me ask you this. Which one's the bad one, envy or jealousy? One of them is I want what that person has Uh and I want to take it away from them. And the other is, I want what that person has. I think envy is one of the seven deadly sins, and it means I 
If I envy you, Rhett, I want everything you have taken away from you and given to me. If I'm jealous, I think it's okay I'm jealous of that beautiful room. You have beautiful guitars. Your hair is fabulous. You don't look 50. You've been working this whole time. I bet your kids are adorable. You live in a beautiful part of the world. I can be jealous of that. And that's okay. I don't want to take it away from you. So I think we can be compassionate and jealous. I love that. You're very sweet. I don't know. I hope I'm right. I'm going to stick to it. (laughs) So I wonder, um, the way these usually wrap up is with, uh, if you could think of some advice that you might give to a version of you, a 21-year-old version of Padgett Brewster that you run into in today's world. And what might you tell that 21-year-old you in 2021? In this world of like social media and stuff, mm-hmm. if I was 21 now, oh, oh, wow, I guess I would say, don't overpluck your eyebrows. <laughs> no, I would say, I'm kidding. I would say that as well. No, I would say, I would say, uh, you look fabulous. and and you have to believe in yourself and just be yourself you don't have to try to be anyone else because there are millions of people trying to be other people but there's only one of you and and that makes you deeply valuable to the world. So be treat yourself well and treat other people well and, and appreciate yourself for exactly who you are, the good and bad of you, but, but accept who you are as an individual instead of trying to be or look like someone else. That's great. Have you answered that? What you would tell 21-year-old you? <laughs> God, I think, you know, when the pandemic started, my producers talked me into doing one of these where um, my producer, Nick, interviewed me, sort of asked me these questions, and I'm sure I answered it. But it wasn't as good as that. Don't pluck your eyebrows. That alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> I'm trying to think, what did Fred Armisen say? He's, Quit smoking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um. I think this has been so great. I'm, I feel I like I'm seeing you. Thank you. Uh, so um, here's to real life, bringing us together in real life soon. Not that it won't be soon enough, but I hope it happens. And I'm I hope so too. I'm so grateful to have gotten to spend some time with you today. Thank you so much, Patchett. Hey, thanks for asking. Wheels <laughs> off out. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.
Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. <laughs>